Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Coffee House Questions podcast with Ryan Polly. This is the third and final part of the Coffee House Questions uh, series at Rock Harbor Fullerton on evolution and creation. And this will be looking a little bit more at intelligent design. I hope you enjoy. All right, so really quick, with intelligent design, and here's what we're looking at, is what's the probability? Is it more likely that life design, is, is designed or the product of natural forces? Because an evolutionist has to give and support the reasons why it's more likely life arose by natural causes, by and natural forces, as well as the theist must support why it's more likely that life arose by intelligent intervention. You know, if you're making the statement, you have to have the burden of proof to show evidence for your statement. And so we both have that. So can we give evidence of why it's more likely that an intelligent being did it? I believe so. If you look here, scientists, atheist scientists, continue to say, look, our universe has the appearance of design. What does it mean to have appearance of design? I mean, something's either designed or it's not. What does it mean it has appearance of design? Anthony Flew says that for 50 years, DNA research has provided materials for a new, enormously powerful argument for design. And so as we study DNA, as we study things more and more, it looks more and more designed. It's appeared to have been designed. And so here's a quick question. Here's a Richard book, Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. What's more likely? Who wrote this book? An intelligent being or non-intelligent forces? For example, was it written by an author or the laws of ink and paper? What's the better explanation of how this book came into existence? That there is an intelligent author. No one is going to say, yes, the laws of ink and paper can give a good reason for how this book came into being, and that it also makes sense. And you can read it, and it's intelligible, right? It's, it's, it's easy to jump to that conclusion. And so um, what Darwin said is, OK, here we have this information. Now, if we can't demonstrate, if it could be demonstrated that any complex origin existed, which could not possibly have been formed by, by numerous successive slight changes, my theory would absolutely break down. And we're going to jump back to the, uh, the example from Richard Dawkins' uh, book here in a second. But so Darwin says, hey, if, uh, if it can't be shown that these small successive changes can produce um, new formed things, then my theory breaks down. Well, here's one example. The bacterial flagellum. Have any of you seen the bacterial flagellum before? The bacterial flagellum is a tail on the end of the E. coli bacteria that allows it to move and maneuver. Here's what we know about it. The width of the E. coli bacteria cell is 1 1,000th the width of a human hair. So if you line up 12,500 of them side by side, it's one inch. So this thing is absolutely tiny. And of course, back in Darwin's day, they had no idea any about this. It's just recently that we've been able to study and discover this. Now, this bacterial flagellum, or this E. coli bacteria, is made up of 240 distinct proteins. Now, do you remember the probability of getting one new protein fold? Now, this is 240 distinct proteins. Now, that pro probability gets multiplied, and it becomes even more improbable. And what's fascinating is that this bacterial flagellum is powered by a microscopic outboard motor on its tail. Now again, let's just think of everyday things. When you look at a motor, what do you assume? Do motors pop into existence through natural forces? If you put a bunch of metal out in a field and let wind, water, and rain take it, you know, its toll on the metal, is it going to form a motor? No, you're going to get rust. It's going to break down. Here's what's fascinating. 
is the motor on the bacterial flagellum, some can run at incredible at 100,000 RPMs, stop within a quarter turn and spin the opposite direction at 100,000 RPMs. Can any of our intelligently designed motors do that? If you're running your motor at 100,000 RPMs, within a quarter turn, can you hit the brakes, throw it in reverse, and get it to go the other direction at 100,000? And so what we have here is that this motor is more highly advanced in design than any motor that us intelligent beings could ever create. And then at the same time, it's irreducibly con complex, meaning that it had to be created at once. If you take away one part of this motor, it becomes non-functional. So again, Darwin said, if you can't create these things through success, you know, successive changes, small changes, then my theory breaks down. Well, here's one. This motor is created of 40 different proteins. If you take one of those away, it becomes non-functional. So how do you explain this coming into existence through small changes? There's one example. And so here, Michael B., he says, the result of these cumulative efforts to investigate the cell, to investigate life in the molecular level, is a loud, clear, piercing cry for design. The result is so unambiguous and so significant that it must be ranked as one of the greatest achievements in the history of science. The discovery rivals those of Newton and Einstein. And so what we see, and now here it kind of goes back to the book, and we talked about this last week if you were here. The DNA in one human cell is equal to 5 million pages of information, or about 25,200 page books. Now again, think about that with Darwin's, I mean, sorry, uh, Richard Dawkins' book, right? Do natural laws explain his book coming into existence? Or is it better, is it more likely that an intelligent author wrote the book? Well now in each one of our cells, the DNA is the equivalent of 25,200 page books. So we're going to say one book can't come about by the laws of nature, but 25,000 could. Does that make any sense? All of it is crammed into the nucleus of a cell, which is about 1 100th the width of a human hair, smaller than any flash drive that we could have. Intelligent beings creating you know, memory and storage couldn't fit 25,000 books in something that small. And then, to cap it off, we have about, average human has about 100 trillion cells in their body. So inside all 100 trillion cells of your body, you have the DNA information equivalent to about 25,000 books. How does that explain through natural forces? Is it more likely that an intelligent creator created it that way? Or that natural forces brought that into existence? If they can't even bring one book into existence, how do you explain 25,000 books times 100 trillion? It's just very, very unlikely, not worth it. And so here Fred Hoyle, uh, the eminent astronomer, says, Com a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a superior intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. And so in the insurmountable obs, here you go. There's about 200,000 enzymes, and the chance of obtaining all, them all in a random trial is one part in 10 to the 40,000th. An outrageously small probability that could not be faced even if the whole universe consisted of organic soup. If one is not uh, um, prejudiced either by social benefits or by scientific training into the conviction that life originated on Earth, then the simple calculation wipes out the idea that entirely out of the court. 
The enormous information content of even the simplest living system cannot, in our view, be generated by what we call natural processes. And so here we have, even from the very, very smallest cell, we have extremely complex, intelligently designed motors and information that can't come about by natural processes. And so just to kind of wrap it up, I want to show you one funny example. Um, this is the Archaeoraptor. Uh, which was led to believe that this was one of our transitional fossils. And the National Geographic published an article in about 1999 about the first bird called the Archaeoraptor. The problem was that it was a fake. A Chinese paleontologist proved that someone had glued a dinosaur tail onto a primitive bird. And so it's fascinating. Uh, Alan Fiducia, who's an evolutionary biologist from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, says the Archaeoraptor is just the tip of the iceberg. There are scores of fake fossils out there, and they have cast a dark shadow over the whole field. When you go to these fossil shows, it is difficult to tell which ones are fake and which ones are not. When asked what would motivate such fraud, Fiducia replied, money. These fossil forgeries have been sold on the black market for years now, a huge sums of money. Anyone who could produce a good fake stands to profit. And so it's just fascinating, again, about all these fossils that are out there. It's been known, too, that they've recreated a whole, bee, a whole uh, transitional fossil. They found like three or four teeth and then recreated the whole rest of the body. It's also come out, you know, I'm sure you've heard of, there's been one study done that they recreated a skull that was supposed to be a transitional fossil, but they took like pieces from different animals, pig fragments and human, you know, and it's just one of those things of, well, why would people fake this? Well, they kind of have something that they want, uh, uh, you know, a point that they're trying to make. They're trying to reach a certain conclusion in their study. And I'm trying to find the information but I was reading an article a while of the number, the percentages of scientists who have admitted to faking or exaggerating scientific discoveries for the purpose of funding, right? If you're getting paid millions of dollars to reach a certain result, to find something, and you're not finding it, a lot of scientists have admitted to kind of fudging the numbers a little bit to be able to keep doing this stuff. And so the same reason, why create a fake? Well, because we're trying to prove a point that evolution is true. And so to wrap it all up, Here's Jonathan Wells, a molecular biologist. He says, my conclusion is that the case for Darwinian evolution is bankrupt. The evidence for Darwinism is not only grossly inadequate, it is systematically distorted. I am convinced that something, sometime in the not too distant future, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 years from now, people will look back in amazement and say, how could anyone have believed this? Darwinism is merely materialistic philosophy masquerading as science, and people are recognizing it for what it is. And so kind of to wrap it all up is we've looked at all these different major discoveries, right, that have been used to show that evolution is true with fossils and DNA and Darwin's finches. But really, it can both be explained by a common ancestor just as well as explained by a common designer. But let's just say, you know, grant that what they're saying is true. Well, how do you explain how life originated? How do you explain the Cambrian explosion? How do you explain the bacterial flagellum? How do you explain the information in our DNA? And scientists are seeing these things and realizing, wow, there is no explanation. We don't know how to explain this through natural causes. And that's why he's come to the conclusion that, hey, 20, 30 years maybe down the road, we're going to look back and be like, why did we believe this? And so I think those questions that we looked at at the beginning are going to be huge to help you. When someone says, do you believe in evolution? Well, what do you mean by evolution? Yeah, I believe in change over time. Yes, I believe in micro. No, I don't believe in macro. Why not? Well, what's, what's your best argument in favor for it? And just to know a couple of those points. 
And to kind of close it off, it was fascinating. Um, I told you guys the first week uh, that I was invited to go to youth group. Did I, I did an atheist role play. And uh, I went in as the atheist, told the kids why I wasn't a Christian. And when we got to the question answer time, it immediately jumped to evolution. And the kids said, well, if you're an atheist, do you believe in evolution? I said, yeah, absolutely. They said, why? I said, because it's a fact. It's a scientific fact that we evolved from a previous ancestor. And they went, oh. And then they were just stuck. They, had, they didn't knew nothing else to say. So like, that we came from monkeys? I was like, yeah, we came from, us and monkeys have a similar ancestor. And they just, they, had, they did not know what to say. And it's fascinating, after, after I got done and told them I was a Christian, now they all refer to me as Ryan the Atheist. So at least, at least now I'm not Ryan the Atheist, but they're my, it was my roommate's uh, youth group, and so they came over to our house for a Christian party, and like, is the atheist here? I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm here. Not an atheist, though. You didn't realize that, right? I'm not an atheist. I'm a Christian. But it was, what was fascinating, though, why I say that, is that it just, all I had to say was that it's a fact that evolution is true, and they were just, they couldn't respond. They'd never, here's, junior, they were junior hires. They'd never been, sh- Talk, it's never been talked about. It's never been presented to them. And I think what we have to be able to do is to, to starting with junior high and high schoolers, say, hey, here's the evidence. And in, when I teach this in my class, I spend an entire class period arguing in favor of evolution as if I was an evolutionary biologist, as if I was one of their biology teachers that they're going to get in college. And I give all the points for it, and I argue in favor for it, and it leaves a lot of my kids like, wow, that really looks like it's true. It's like, okay, now let's break down each one of those but it's exposing them so they're not like shocked the first time they hear it. And uh, it's just amazing what, you're a- what people are able to get away with students. Another thing, you know, there's no reason whatsoever that Jesus ever existed. There's one thing I think I told them. And they're like, oh. You know, as we saw last week, there's tons of reasons to believe in the existence of Jesus. And so sometimes it's just, hey, we don't have to be scared of this topic. We can talk about it with students. We can show them, hey, here's the points that an evolutionist is going to make, and here's why that fails. Here's why that breaks down, and here's why creation makes a lot more sense. And so I think we need to start kind of having those conversations, presenting that to our students, and so they're not shocked the first time they hear this in one of their classrooms, like the students were with me, but they can say, okay, well, what's your point? Well, what do you mean by evolution? How did you come to that conclusion? And it will really help our students in the long run. Well, I hope you've enjoyed uh, the series uh, at Rock Harbor Fullerton, the questions class. Over the three weeks, there are 12 different parts covering uh, does truth exist, does God exist, are miracles possible, is the New Testament reliable, and then looking at creation versus evolution. You can go back and listen to all those on the podcast. You can find them all at coffeehousequestions.com, and I hope you have enjoyed them. That is the end of the question class at Rock Harbor Fullerton. So starting next week, we'll be back to the normal schedule of about a 10-minute podcast uh, put out every Saturday morning, um, and that'll come out next week. So I hope you enjoyed this kind of break-off series uh, from Rock Harbor Fullerton, and uh, I love doing it, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it as well. So have an awesome rest of your week. God bless, and I'll be back with you on a normal podcast starting next week. Oh